The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 10.45 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, very famous passage of the healing of the man born blind. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seen. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Now, this is the sixth sign that is recorded in the Gospel of John. When you go to the very back of John's Gospel, uh, John wrote this probably about 90 AD. So we're talking about 60 or so years after the life of Christ. So he's writing after the other Gospel writers have written, and he's selecting carefully uh, chosen stories and miracles to describe in this gospel. And he records seven signs, eight if you count the resurrection. And he says the reason for that at the very end. He says in John 20, verse 30, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he's writing this as an apologetic. He's putting this miracle here so that you would see Christ and that you would believe. The Greek word for sign is the word simeon, simeon, and it means something that points to something else. And John uses that word very carefully because he's saying, I want you not just to see the miracle here. I want you to see what it's pointing to. These things are written so that they point to greater spiritual realities. And that's what John is wanting you to see. So let me just review for you 
very quickly the signs that Jesus has already done in John's gospel. First, you remember, is the turning of the water into wine at the, uh, the wedding in Cana. That's in John chapter 2. And you remember, uh, there were six huge jars that were filled to the brim with wine. And that miracle represents the lavish grace of Christ. John says at the very beginning, from his fullness flows grace upon grace, that Christ's grace is lavish. He doesn't just make a little wine, he makes a lot of wine, and he makes the best wine. And then the second sign was the healing of the nobleman or the official son in John chapter 4. At the very end, when, after Jesus meets with the woman at the well, Jesus is in Cana, and a nobleman comes all the way from Capernaum to Cana, and he says, Jesus, you need to come quickly because my boy is sick. And Jesus says, go because he's well. And that teaches us that Jesus transcends time and space. He's able to say a word and cause something to happen miles and miles and miles away. Third sign was the healing of the man who was lame for 38 years at the beginning of John chapter 5. And that sign illustrates for us the immediacy of grace. The immediacy of grace. Do you remember there were um, the Bethesda pool, people sat by that pool hoping, this was a myth, that an angel would come stir it up. The first one in was the one who got the healing. So Jesus comes to this man, and what he does is he simply says, take up your mat and walk. He doesn't say, let me help you into the pool, and then I'm going to heal you in the pool. He says, no, I'm going to heal you right here. Jesus has an immediacy of grace. He can touch someone, and they are healed. He can speak to someone, and they are saved. Fourth sign was the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6. And that's a very important sign because it teaches us, listen carefully, that Jesus is the essence of all true spirituality. Jesus is the essence of all true spirituality. What is more basic than food? Is there anything more basic? Food is the sustenance for your life. And so what Jesus teaches in the, the Bread of Life discourse is he says, I am the sustenance for your spiritual life. If you want to live, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. So Jesus Christ is the foundation of all true spiritualities. And then the fifth sign is when Jesus then comes walking to his disciples on the water in John 6, verses 16 to 21. And that teaches us that Jesus is the Lord of nature, the Lord of the cosmos, that he can walk on the waves, gets in the boat, calms the storm. Jesus is the Lord of the universe, the Lord of the cosmos. So each of these signs manifests our Lord's glory and teaches us something very important about what it means to be a disciple of Christ and receive grace from him. So this sixth sign, now we come to the sixth sign, the man that is blind from birth who is healed. And this teaches us that... Um, we are all spiritually blind. We all relate to this man. Uh, some of the commentators said that out of all the miracles, this miracle best illustrates salvation. Salvation. Because we are all born just like this man in a spiritual state 
of blindness, a spiritual state of blindness. So there's a direct correlation between us and him, and it's Christ who must intervene in our spiritual lives to give us grace. So let's begin looking at verse one and see the problem of blindness, the problem of blindness. Look at verse one. It says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. So John chapter 8, John chapter 7, remember, all takes place at the Feast of Booths. It's unclear what the connection here is between the Feast of Booths that happened earlier. Uh, Perhaps it's soon after, perhaps it's later. We do know from later on in uh, verse 14 that it's a Sabbath day. So it's a Saturday, it's a Sabbath, and remember the Jews taught that you weren't supposed to heal on the Sabbath. Jesus takes it upon himself to heal anyway. We do know that Jesus is on his way into the temple, so he probably had slept uh, the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane. That was their usual custom. Remember, they would come into Jerusalem. He's walking his way into the temple, and Jesus sees this man. Somehow, this blind beggar catches Jesus's attention, and he sees this man, and we find out, John tells us, that he was blind from birth. Matthew Henry said this. I thought this was interesting. He says, he that is blind has no enjoyment of the light, but he that is born blind has no idea of it. You see the difference? If, if you go blind, you at least have an idea of what it means to see. You know what it's like to see a beautiful sunset. You know what it's like to look at the face of a friend or a loved one, but if you're born blind, you have no conception of what it even means to see something. You don't know what it means to, to not see light. You don't know what you are missing. And on a spiritual level, that is the plight of man. That is the plight of mankind, is that each and every person, because of Adam's sin, is born in a state of spiritual blindness, of spiritual blindness. We've advanced so far technologically. We've advanced medically. We've advanced, well, I don't know how far you could say we've advanced educationally. Uh, (laughs) We're digressing there. Um, But we think of ourselves as an advanced people. We think that we're moving ahead. We're on the, what's the phrase that people use? The right side of history. But yet man is still as blind as he has ever been. And that is because of the darkness of the spiritual condition in which we are born. Let me give you a a verse. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4. He said, in their case, Satan... The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So Satan has blinded the mind of the unbeliever. So spiritually, they do not see. John says in 1 John 5, 19, he says, the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. So listen carefully. The problem is not only that man is spiritually blind and under the spell of Satan, it's that man doesn't know 
that he's spiritually blind. <laughs> That's the issue. Man thinks that he's good. You know, talk to people down at the state house. Do you think you're a good person or a bad person? Oh, I'm a great person. Um, this has always been man's condition. Man doesn't realize the depth of their sin and the depth of their own spiritual blindness before God. So Christ came. Christ came not just to provide the means of salvation, which he does, but to open up our blind eyes so that we, so that we can see the remedy. Uh, Paul says, Galatians 1.4, Christ came to deliver us from the present evil age. So the only hope for man is for Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit to remove your spiritual blindness. Remember the slave trader John uh, Newton? Uh, he wrote Amazing Grace. He said, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. He understood it. Look, you're in a state of spiritual blindness. And when Jesus went and talked to Nicodemus, he said this, look, what you need is you need the Holy Spirit to work in your heart this miracle, supernatural work of regeneration. Because without that work, he says, John 3, 3, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. So there's a need for a new heart, for Christ to open your eyes so you can see the necessity of grace. Uh, look at verse 39 of, of this chapter. So the debate's going to go on, and where Jesus is going to take this is to the spiritual implications. He's going to teach the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees that he's debating with the spiritual truth. Look at verse 39. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world. Uh, the judgment is this. You're, you either decide to be with Christ or you decide against Christ. You have to make a decision with Christ. You either believe him, in him or you reject him. So that's what he's talking about. He says that those who do not see may see. In other words, those that come to the real, realization that they are spiritually blind, that they are spiritual beggars, that they are sinners, those people may see. But then look what he says. Those people that delude themselves and think that they're righteous, that think that they can see spiritually, look what he says. And those who see may become blind. Those who see may become blind. So some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Are you telling us, Jesus, that we're sinners? Are you telling us that we have spiritual needs? Are you telling us that we're spiritually blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind you would have no guilt. In other words, you would look to me and you would see, you would believe. But now that you say we see, he says, your guilt remains. Here's what he's saying. He says, you won't even admit your spiritual problem. I can't get you saved unless you realize that you're lost. I can't get you to see unless you realize that you're blind. So it, it's the work of God, it's the work of the Holy Spirit that leads you in your experience to come to the point where you realize that you need Christ that you realize that you are not righteous. Remember the prophet said, even our righteous deeds are what? Before God. Filthy rags. Filthy rags. What do most people think that their righteous deeds are? Oh God, you got to take me in. You got to take me in. I'm a good person. I do more good than bad. Most people think that their righteous deeds are righteous. 
And Jesus is saying, no, you have to realize that you are broken, that you are bankrupt, that you are a sinner, and that you are blind. You have to come to the realization of your problem, that you are blind, the problem of blindness. So next, the philosophy of glory. Jesus is going to teach his disciples in this interaction what I'm calling the philosophy of glory. So the disciples now pose to Jesus a philosophical problem. And you might say that they believe in theological karma, theological karma. Many of the Jews taught that every misfortune, every evil action that happened was a direct result of a previous evil deed that was committed. So there's a direct correlation. So if something bad happens to you, it's because it's directly linked to something bad that you did. It's theological karma every time. Now, does God judge sin? Yes. Just look at the flood, right? Some, there are discipline and judgment as a result of sin. So we're not saying that. We're not saying that God doesn't judge sin. Jesus, uh, after he had um, healed the, the lame man for 38 years in John 5, 14, he, he found that man and he told him, he says, see, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. So sometimes God does judge a specific sin. Sometimes God does discipline for us for our sin. But not all bad things that happen in this world are always directly correlated to a specific sin that is committed. But yet, that's what the Jews of the day taught. Uh, Alfred Edersheim, who was a Jew converted to Christianity, said it was, quote, a common Jewish view that the merits or demerits of the parents would even appear in the children. So if you sinned, your child would be punished for it. So here's this situation. This man has been born blind, and the disciples ask this question, is, the, is, is this a correlation? Look at verse 2. His disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that was born blind? So they pridefully assume that there is sin directly involved in this man's predicament. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to correct this misunderstanding. He's going to correct this misunderstanding. He actually speaks to this. If you put your finger here, I want you to turn very briefly to Luke 13. He speaks to this in Luke 13 because people had this idea of, of the theological, ethic, ethical karma. And people, Jesus is asked about this situation that happened where these Galileans, for some reason, they ended up on Pilate's bad list. Maybe they were zealots. Maybe Pilate saw them as a threat. But Pilate decided to take out some Galileans when they were going to offer sacrifices in the temple. So he put his Roman soldiers there in the temple and waited until they were offering sacrifices, and they went and killed them. So verse 13, or chapter 13, verse 1, it says, There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered him. He said, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? He says, 
actually, God, God is using this event to teach you something really important. He said, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he, he says, look, I'll give you another example. Apparently, this tower on the southern end of, of Jerusalem had fallen, and 18 people had died uh, when it fell. He says, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So this is a picture that God is giving you as a warning of judgment. So repent, repent. That's what, uh, t- take for example, 9-11. Take, I mean, let's just take a real world, world example. The people who got up in Newark, New Jersey and drove in that morning and took the elevator up in the tower, were they worse sinners than anybody else here? It was a wake-up call. Repent. Repent. The time is short. So turn back to to John chapter 9. And look what Jesus says. Verse 3. He says, It was not that this man sinned or his parents. In other words, he knows the secret counsels of God. He says, there's no, there's no direct correlation here. He says, this, this is really important that you see this. He says, but the reason why this man was blind, the, the, the rationale behind this was that the works of God might be displayed in him. Wow. That's big God theology. So several things to think about here. First thing. Jesus believed in the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. He's not denying the sovereignty of God. Paul says in Ephesians 1.11 that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. So it's not that God is not in control over this. God allowed this man to be born blind. So it's not that God is not in control, but the reason why God allow this man to be born blind, isn't the correlation that they think it is. It's so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That the glory of God would be displayed and seen in the healing of this man's blindness. That God allowed this man to be blind to put his character on display. That he is the power to heal blind eyes. That he is the power to give mercy to whomever he desires. So the purpose of this man's blindness is for the demonstration of the Son of God's glory. Do you remember Jesus with Lazarus? He said, come on, come on, he's sick, he's sick. And do you remember what Jesus did? He waited He waited for him to die. And it was so that his glory would be displayed when he was raised from the dead. You see, here's what you need to understand. God is working everything in this universe sovereignly for the greater purpose of his ultimate glory. That is the trajectory of history. 
and Romans 8, 28, the ultimate good of the Christian. Those things are not at odds. God is working everything, everything, even the birds singing, everything for his glory. It's absolutely stunning to think about. So when you're going through a difficult situation, when you're going through a difficult situation, is God sovereign over that? Yes, he's sovereign. What's the ultimate purpose of this trial that you're facing? His glory. That's the ultimate purpose. And your edification, you're the building up of your faith. James says, James 1, 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and even that gives glory to God. So when you're walking through the valley, don't say, oh, God's forgotten me. When you're afflicted, don't say, oh, God's leaving me out to dry. Do you remember Paul? He said, God, take this thorn in the flesh away from me. And what did Christ say to him? He said, no. He said, my grace is sufficient for you that my power may be perfected in your weakness. He said, I'm allowing you to be weak so that people will see the power of God in your life for his ultimate glory. So the prosperity gospel has completely mutilated this idea. They said, if you're not prosperous and healthy and all these things, then it's not giving glory to God and God's forgotten you. When the New Testament and Jesus himself says it's the exact opposite. That God is working. That this man was born blind. That the glory of God might be displayed. So that's the philosophy of glory. First, we saw the problem of blindness. Now, the principle of good works. The principle of good works. Look at verse 4. Here's what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me. Who sent him? God the Father. That's who he's talking about. Who is the one sent? Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. So Jesus is telling his disciples his philosophy of ministry. Okay, this is his philosophy of ministry. He says, God has given me works to do. You remember earlier, he said, my food, my drink is to do the will of the Father who sent me. God has given me works to do. He prepared to do these works for 30 years. And then, do you remember at Cana, his, his mom said, uh, can you do something about this whole situation? He said, my hour has not yet come. But then it starts. And for three years, he does the work that he came to do. Three years. So he is working, carrying out the Father's will. And here's what he says. Notice, he said, I am doing these works that the Father sent me to do. When? While it is day. But night is coming. Here's what he's saying. Daytime is for working. Night is for sleeping. 
there's periods of time to do work, and there's periods of time where you don't do work. You do your work in the daytime. You go home and you sleep in the nighttime. He's saying, look, the daytime is here. What's he mean? He means, I'm going to be here for about five more months on this earth. I'm going to be here for five more months. And then he's telling his disciples, they're going to crucify me. I'm going to be resurrected. And then I'm going to the Father. He keeps telling them this. So the period of time that he has on this earth to teach and to keep doing the works that the Father gives him is is getting shorter and shorter. He's saying the daytime is here, but the night is coming. And the night is when he's gone, when he's gone. And at that point, his ministry will be over. So notice very carefully, what's the, the first pronoun that's used in the sentence? Look back at verse four. Is it first person? No, no. It's we. Well, it is first person. First person plural, not first person singular. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. So Jesus includes his disciples in this. He's saying, you have a limited time of day as well. For Peter, it was 68 AD, and then Nero crucified him upside down. So there's a limited time of day, a limited window that God gives each of the disciples, each of us. I think we're included in this that God gives us a window of day to do the works that God has given us, and then night comes when we cannot work anymore. I heard Tommy Nelson one time say that um, the steeple at Park City's Baptist Church in Dallas, if if you're in downtown, Park City's is just right north of downtown, big church, huge steeple. On all four sides of the steeple, the words are written, night cometh, night cometh. And when they built that church, they put those words on there as a reminder. And you can see it from downtown, as a reminder to everybody who saw that steeple that time is short, that you have a limited amount of time to do the work that God has given you to do. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians 5. He says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. There's a grave need to seize the day, to seize the day, and to do the work that God has given you to do. Jesus is saying here, look, I'm not going to put off ministry for another day. I'm not going to put off good works for another day. The day is here, and so the time for me to do the good works is here. And that's the mindset that we all must have. Life is short. You don't know how much time that you have here. C.T. Studd said, life is short and will soon be past. Only what is done for Christ will last. So I'm pleading with you. Don't be lackadaisical in the Christian life. 
the day is short. Your night will come, and then it's just eternity. So, help your fellow man. Do the good works of ministry. Teach the gospel. Volunteer. Give. Do what you need to do now, because night is coming so that's Jesus' philosophy of ministry. And then here's, here's where he wants to get people. And this is, this is the, the message. Look at verse 5. He says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus is saying that he explicitly is the answer to all the problems. Uh, this verse, you could translate it, uh, the first phrase, wheresoever Jesus is in the world, he is the light of the world. Whenever Jesus is in the world, he is the light of the world. In other words, whatever the situation is, whatever the problem that is faced, whatever the, the context, the, the climate, the setting, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world in every single opportunity. So this is the focal point of Jesus' ministry, the ministry of the apostles in the church. The work of the church in all seasons and all ages is to lift up the light of the world. This is the Christian message, that the world is in darkness, and Jesus is the light, and Jesus is the only answer for the world. That is the message. That's it. Jesus is the light of the world. He's the answer to every spiritual problem. He is the answer to every moral evil. He is the answer to the fallenness of man. He is the answer to the devil. He is the answer to sin. And therefore, the message of the church must be Christ and him crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, folly to to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power, power of God, and the wisdom of God. It is when the church has departed from this message that its doors close and it becomes dark. When the church simply says we're a social organization to help people in their physical needs, and they stop proclaiming the truth of the gospel, or worse, when the church begins to say that you're really not that bad, that we're all God's children, and Jesus just came to show you how to be a better person. That's the message that so many of the churches have preached for the past hundred years. It's not what Jesus said. He said, I'm the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. I came for a supernatural reason, that eyes may be opened so people can know me and know God and be saved and have their sins forgiven. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, nor is there salvation in anyone else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved. I am the light of the world. And until you realize that you are blind and in sin, you will not see the light. That is the message. That is the only message. And that's the message by which the church advanced. That's the message that saves sinners. So when we are working, and we should be working, let's not waste our time with a different message. Jesus is the light of the world, praise be to God. 
So now, we come to the portrayal of grace. We see how when Jesus heals this man, we see the portrayal of grace, of how grace works in the Christian life. So if you look at verse 6, Jesus, having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. Several things to notice here. I think this is fascinating. The man does not ask Jesus to heal him. There's no expression of faith. In fact, there's no interaction even with the blind man. He doesn't ask the man, do you want to be healed, like he does in some situations. He doesn't ask permission to heal him. He simply moves to heal. He spits on the ground. He makes mud and anoints the mud on the man's eyes. Now, it's unclear, I think, why the saliva is used, why he spits on the ground and makes mud. He used saliva to heal a blind man in, in Bethsaida in, in Mark chapter 8. But I think here we're reminded that everything in our Lord's hand is useful. Everything in our Lord's hand is useful because it is the Lord who wields it. Do you question whether the Lord can use you? He can use mud. I guarantee he can use you. Whatever is in the Lord's hands is useful. He is the creator of the earth, the one who fashioned the cosmos, the one who created Adam from the dust of the earth. So this healing is a picture of God's grace, a glorious picture of salvation, that Christ takes that anointed mud and he touches the eyes of this man, the nerves and the retinas in his eyes. And simply by touching the eyes and sending that man to bathe in the pool of Siloam, the man is healed. Now, like I said, he doesn't ask permission to work in his life. People often think that you have to give Christ permission to give grace. No, no. Christ confronts us as sinners. This is, the, this is the wonder and the mystery of Christianity, is that Christ confronts people when they're running hellbound against God. And, and you hear these stories, you've heard this, your friends or family members, you're like, man, what happened to her? I, I, I didn't see that coming. Yeah, nobody did. She didn't even see it coming. Do you remember the Apostle Paul? He's riding a stallion to Damascus to kill Christians. Bam! Does Jesus ask his permission? Paul, can I ask you to get down from that horse? Can I ask you to climb down from that stallion? I'd like to make you a missionary. He doesn't ask permission. Paul, why are you persecuting me? Boom! I'm on the ground, blind. Uh, people often quote Revelation 3.20. In an evangelistic sermon, you ever hear this? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you will let me in, I will come in and dine with you and all those things. That's not written to an unbeliever. That's written to a church. Um, the, the problem with man is that we can't even get up to answer the door. Isn't that what Paul says, Ephesians 2.1? He says, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're not sleeping on the couch. 
We're in the back room as a corpse. Jesus has to break down the door, go in, and raise life. So this is a picture of grace. It's, it's not just that the eyes need to be opened. It's that he needs to see light. So Jesus doesn't ask permission. He just moves to hill. And what, it makes you see the wonder of grace. That Christ, if you're in Christ, that he lavished his grace upon you. That he rescued you. That he came to you when you were undeserving and walking contrary to the cross. That he came and that he saves. And that's the work of grace. Look at verse 7. He said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So, real quick, we're going to, John is wanting you to make a connection here. Because he literally puts this this isn't the translators putting in this parentheses. This is John putting in, in these parentheses. This is the Word of God. He's, he's saying that the Siloam, uh, which comes from a Hebrew word, Salah, means to send, that this pool means sent. So Jesus tells him to go to this pool to, to wash, and he comes back seen. Now, the pool of Siloam was built by the king Hezekiah. You can read about that in 2 Kings 20.20. It's, for that reason, was sometimes called the king's pool. It was fueled by an underground conduit which brought water into the city. So, the pool is called sent. Now, quick question. Who did Jesus say earlier is the one who is sent? He was. Remember the one who sent me? So he is the one who is sent. He's sending him to a pool called sent. Are you seeing the connection that John is trying to get you to see? The pool represents Christ. Go and bathe in the pool, and then you will see. It's the picture that in Christ is all the grace that you need. That's John 1.16, from his fullness is grace upon grace upon grace. That all the grace in the world is found in Christ. There is no other grace. You're not going to get grace from any other religion. It's Christ, Christ, Christ. There's one source of grace. So he goes, he washes in the pool, and he comes back seen. So that is the portrayal of grace. And then lastly, this is so fascinating. This is so fascinating. The perception of the man. And by perception, I mean how other people view this, how other people begin to perceive this. The perception of the man. Look at verse 8. There's massive confusion over this, over what has happened. And I'm going to explain why. But verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Wasn't he, isn't this the guy who was outside the temple that we walk by every single day? Uh, who is this man? Uh, some said it is he, so some said it's the same guy. Others said, no, but he is like him. He looks like him. He's an identical twin. He's, he's an impersonator. He, he looks like him. And the man himself, the 
formerly blind beggar, keeps saying, no, I'm the man. Listen to me, I'm the man. But no one's really listening to him. Kind of is like a conversation I have with my boys. They just keep talking, and I'm trying to say something, but they don't listen. But here's the thing. There's going to be, and the whole chapter is set up with the debate over this man. What happened to him? How were his eyes healed? Um, How could this be? Here's the reason for the debate. All right, here's the reason for the debate. Uh, The reason for the debate is because no one in the Old Testament had ever healed a blind person before. No one outside of Christ ever heals a, a blind person because the healing of a blind person is a messianic sign. It's a messianic sign. Prophet Isaiah said, Isaiah 29, 18, in that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of the gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Isaiah 35, 5, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the death unstopped. Isaiah 42, 7, to open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. So the healing of the blind is the sign that Jesus is the Messiah. That's one of the reasons why we're going to see the Sanhedrin completely rejects the sign. They don't want to admit that Jesus is the Messiah. So, verse 10, they said to him, how were your eyes opened? Verse 11, he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Salome and wash. So, I went and washed and received my sight. So, a very short statement of conversion. Um, Notice real quick uh, that he says uh, in verse 9, I am the man. Um, That's the phrase ego a me. Does that sound familiar? That's what Jesus says over and over. I am, I am, I am. He says, I am the man. He's identifying already with Christ. He's saying, this man, Jesus, verse 11, uh, made mud, anointed my eyes, and sent me, go to Siloam and wash. And so he says, I simply acted in faith. I went and washed and received my sight. And the emphasis is upon Jesus. This man, Jesus. This man, Jesus. I went, I washed, and I received my sight. Verse 12, they said to him, where is he? And he answers truthfully. This isn't, you don't need to take this metaphysically. This isn't like, uh, this, this isn't a symbolic thing. He just says, I do not know. A simple statement. All that he knows is what Christ has done for him. That Christ has done the impossible. That he's been blind since he was born. And that Christ has done something that has not been heard of in the entire Old Testament that Christ has given him sight. And I believe salvation as well, because what you're going to see in the rest of the chapter as we study it is that he stands against the entire Sanhedrin and begins to teach them who the Lord Jesus is. And he teaches them how the Lord gives spiritual sight, because God had worked this grace in his life, and he's been, has had his physical eyes open, 
and his spiritual eyes open as well. Praise be to God. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the incredible display that you worked these works so that we could see and understand the nature of true Christianity and true religion, that we are spiritually blind, spiritually dead, in need of a Savior, in need of the light of the world. So, Lord, may we see that, and may we come to that realization, and may we know that you are that light. And just like this man born blind who was healed 2,000 years ago, that we need that healing as well. I pray, Lord, for anyone here that has never come to the point of their need of a Savior, that they would see their need, that they would look to Christ and be saved. We ask you all of this, as we saw, for your glory and your honor. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.